Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. Uh, So now I think we'll start with a discussion of the reading. Conan, would you like to start us off? Yep, sure. Um, Just as a general introduction, uh, Brandy and Emily, how understanding do you think and receptive is the judicial system of sexual orientation and gender identity-based claims? Uh, do you mean how understanding is the judicial system to those types of claims? Yes, yeah. Um, oh, not understanding at all. I think we're making we're making very, very slow progress here in Australia and probably in most other jurisdictions around the world in um, moving away from a period of time where most countries still uh, criminalised and have huge levels of societal discrimination against that group towards trying to create a legal system that um, fairly and uh, in, in a human, with a human rights perspective, assesses their claims for asylum. It's, um, it's a huge area of uh, problematic and inconsistent decision-making in Australia at all levels, the primary and merits and judicial stages. And, um, I, I, you know, I think the article really just shows how many aspects of the judicial system that's looking at these kinds of claims um, are fraught with problems. Uh, you know, Raj talks across a lot of different different problems. It's a very dense article. Um, but it's an area that's also garnered very little uh, public interest, public discussion. Um, there's a lot of academic work being done in this space, but there's not a lot of work within the actual judicial systems to um, try and for some really concrete change. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a huge, huge problem area, and that, as I'm sure Brandy will agree, she's looked at lots and lots of decisions over her research. Yeah, I definitely would agree with Emily over, you know, looking at, you know, cases from the last five years that have come out of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. It's um, egregious some of the things, um, some of the decisions that are made and what they're based on. It has, looks like it's gotten a bit better in the last few years. But we have to also understand that because these are occurring in this administrative system, that the the people that are being um, subjected to it, if you will, are um, don't have the same kind of rights and don't have the same kind of um, you know access to protections that people um, would say in like a civil or criminal court, right? So the minute that their claim at the administrative appeals level is is denied they're supposed to be immediately ejected from the country, deported back to unsafe spaces. So it's a really important issue. And as I think Emily said, you know, some academics are kind of looking into it, but it's still new, kind of a new space to look into. And um, I think really important that these people that we give the power to deport to, um, these administrative law judges, yeah, I think it's more to talk about there, but I think that the article does a good job of starting to, to discuss how those decisions are made and the problems with how those decisions are made. I think just one more point on that, that the Raj sums it up really well when he says that the issues with refugee law broadly in the entire, across the entire globe are related to the idea that refugee law used to, or the issues around refugees used to be related to 
or used to be considered an area of humanitarian compassion, which has now moved towards a matter of anxious control, I think is how he described it. And when you have a system like that, that is fundamentally based on anxious control, which is a great term, um, any, any sub-marginalised groups within an already marginalised groups are going to feel the fallout more than any other. And I think that is reflected in a lot of what Raj has said and, and a lot of other discourse around this area. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great summing up as well. That reference to anxious control is very provoking. Mm. Um, thank you both. Uh, next we have Mads, who's going to ask a question. Are you ready, Yes, thanks, Annie, and thank you both Randy and Emily for being here. Um, my question, I think um, both of you may have a perspective on. Um, uh, so for, for many queer people, they express their identity and um, have experiences that are a little bit more subtle than perhaps some others, um, either because that's their preference or because um, the persecution that they fear, they they use it as a protective mechanism towards that. Um, do you think that those individuals are marginalised in the asylum process once they arrive here? And could you discuss that further? You want me to go first, Emily? Yeah, side? go for it. All right. Uh, thanks for your question, um, Madeline. Um, yeah, and I think Raj talks about that a little bit, right? There's a certain amount of, um, you know, this sort of Western stereotypes that are focused on this sort of, you know, masculine, masculinist idea of coming out and of um, performing in specific ways, being connected to communities, you know, all of these different um, sort of ideas of what these judges are basing their decisions on. So if you don't perform in that specific way, you know, he talks about kind of two different ways um, Raj talks about two different ways about, you know, how homosexuality should look. However, if you fall outside of that, you don't emote in the correct way. You know, these, these are serious issues for you um, when you are attempting to seek asylum. If you don't have the right kind of motion or if your testimony isn't um, clear enough. I talked a little bit in my um, uh, in my talk um, previously when I met Emily, you know, it's not just about credibility. Um, so it's about credibility, right? Is your story the same every time? And does it give up this kind of like air of suffering in the way that we want to see it as Western viewers, right? And um, Raj also talks about contact with the, with the community. But I think there's also things about, you know, appearance. It's like if you don't appear um, in a certain way, physically dressed in a certain way or you know, um, styled in a certain way, you also are seen um, as, as not being, you know, quote unquote, gay enough to, to be um, protected under our laws. So I think, I think Raj is a good idea of talking about that. I think that can be even further expanded in those people who don't fall into that. And, and these people, you know, that we're talking about aren't, they're, they're coming from cult culturally different spaces where it's, you know, dangerous to be out and dangerous to be queer and dangerous to be trans of course they're going to act in a different way than you know we already have okay sorry starting on a little rant there wasn't I well, there's already a serious problem right with you know trans people trans women especially being killed and that's in countries such as Australia and the US and they're not even thinking about those extra levels of, of sort of danger and um, peril and precarity that occur in other spaces that you know other countries that 
of origin that aren't as safe for people. Yeah, I agree, Ray. I think um, it's a question to answer succinctly because there are so many reasons why this particular group of asylum seekers, in my opinion, um, face challenges that other cohorts of people seeking protection don't face. Um, it's multi-layered and a lot of it comes back to the, the fundamental reason why they're seeking asylum is to do with something so innate to them, uh, so specific and unique to them. And it's not, it's, that's not replicated uh, across any other cohort of people seeking asylum. So you know, even if we just look at, okay, people, people have to prove their sexuality or their gender identity in this cohort. In every other cohort, you don't have to prove your sexuality if you are heterosexual. You're considered the norm and those questions around your sexuality are not uh, really relevant. Even if part of your claim is about your relationship, say if your claim is related to um, being married into a, a family that is of a dif different ethnicity or a different caste or a family of a different religion or whatever it is, you will be assessed against, um, there are problems with the assessment there as well, but you will generally then be assessed relatively reasonably against the credibility guidelines, which should apply to all people seeking asylum, in that if you are generally consistent across um, all of your different documents and at your interviews, you can provide a reasonable level of detail um, and what you're saying is plausible, that, that's the assessment that's applied to you. Um, but when you're assessed uh, as a claimant whose claim is based on their uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, um, rather than just following those credibility guidelines, which really should be all that's needed in these cases as well, there's this whole nother level of you needing to prove um, what your gender identity is or what your uh, sexual orientation is. And that's the fundamental problem, is that rather than having a consistent approach to credibility assessment, when you're looking at this particular group, sorry, um, we start to get into an area where they say, well, I'm not, not going to just assess whether you're generally credible and give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to make sure that you fit my understanding of what your life should be, have been like and what you should present to me like. And um, it's just it's just unique to this area and it's a huge, huge problem. And Raj talks about it quite well in, in focusing on some of those, <clears throat> uh, some of the AAT cases that he discussed. And um, yeah, I mean, we could, we, could, we could talk about it for, for hours, but um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, Conan. I think that was a great answer to Conan's question, Conan. Yeah. Oh, right, no, we were on to Maddie's question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Mads, that was to your question. Do you yes. feel answered your question? Great. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, that's a really good lead on into a question from Marthea. So Raj talks about the uh, stereotyping of complex queer identities while in the process of application and judgments. Um, so my question is, if you were a judge, what kind of evidence do you think you could consider that would not restrict these complex identities? Um, or do you think maybe it's not possible in the kind of system that people are now and maybe it requires a more fundamental structural change? The system is working how it's supposed to be working. The system is not broken. The system is put up to keep as many people out as possible because of that, you know, as Emily mentioned and Raj mentioned, right, that anxious control. It's no longer a protective measure. So 
to say, you know, oh, the system's broken, oh, what could we do within our system is actually, in some ways, um, quite difficult to, to consider. I do like um, Raj's idea of, you know, queer is just the non-normative, right? So if we are able to train, say, you know, these administrative law judges in, in an understanding that if they aren't meeting, you know, what heterosexual um, ideas, that perhaps there is a difference of, um, you know, uh, gender um, identity or different kinds of sexuality. It's sort of the difference that then is what could be relied on. I mean, I don't know. I think Emily's going to be better at this sort of part around talking about how the law could could bring this in. But it's it's so culturally um, different for for each space. Um, I was thinking. Um, yesterday when I was reading over my notes and thinking about what I wanted to talk about today is that, you know, out of Malaysia, you have this sort of group of uh, young people called Peng Kids, P-E-N-G, um, and a number of them have made um, applications um, to the Administrative Appeals Court, um, or Tribunal, sorry. Um, some of these people uh, identify as um, trans men, some of them identify as lesbians, um, the thing that they have in common is sort of this, you know, um, kind of like tough butch look usually. Um, so there's this group that, that's not even homogenous within its own country as to how they believe that they identify. They all still identify singularly. So in order to change our system, there has to actually be, you know, understanding beyond a Western idea of what gay or queer looks like. And there has to be you know, uh, training around that. And that has to be, you know, I think embraced more than anything is each individual case needs to be, you know, we're talking about credibility, right? It's not just about credibility, like Emily was saying, it's not just like, are you coming here? Are you a credible person? It doesn't include trauma. It doesn't, you know, doesn't include, you know, internalized homophobia or uh, issues with self or how you present and without more education. I don't know. I think that's a hard, a hard one to talk about um, because I think the average old white dude is not going to be able to be open to that much of a understanding that there's shades of difference and, you know, third spirit people and, you know, all of the, these different ways that people can identify that, that aren't as easily grouped um, as they are in our Western understanding of, of sexuality and gender identity. So blow it all up. No, I'm just joking. But I think Emily might have some good ideas about how we can consider change. I, I suppose there's two different ways I'd answer it. I'd say that one of the, I think one of the fundamental problems for this particular cohort of claimants is that there's no explicit protection for them within the international refugee law. Um, and so you're already starting from a very difficult uh, point where you're expecting decision makers at an administrative level in countries all across the world to reason with the idea of a particular social group in order to find that people who fall within this particular category are owed protection, um, leaving aside secondary um, processes for protection, such as complementary protection that we have here in Australia or the, the withholding system they have in the US. Looking just at the Refugees Convention, we, we don't have an explicit uh, way to uh, 
argue that people who fall within this cohort should be protected. And so we automatically start from a position of having to crawl back to create our convention nexus, which is incredibly complex and has taken the last 20 years of judicial decision making in the federal circuit court and federal court and high court here in Australia to um, get us to a point where there's some reasonably well articulated jurisprudence to guide decision makers on how to actually effectively bring someone into a particular social group. Um, and Raj talked to, spoke about that, you know, specifically in that, that that starting point um, combined with decision makers own opinions and the power that is given to them to apply their own personal opinion biases and stereotypes um, when they're also then trying to grapple with the idea of having to very clearly define what group you fit into to fit you into a convention uh, ground um, we, we we're sort of starting off on the wrong foot already but we we can't do much about that uh, quickly or easily because what we would need to change that starting point is obviously a change to the convention. Um, so looking at what Australia can do to be operating with the best practice system for assessing asylum claims um, within that already fraught or problematic kind of international framework, we, we do have a reasonably good um, administrative legal system in Australia if it's working well. Um, we have a, a, a fairly robust merits review um, pathway for some people seeking asylum still. Um, and if the system wasn't, as Brandy said, set up to try and refuse and remove people um, by its culture, um, which is sort of driven by the federal government because it's, you know, administrative decision making, um, the system could work well. And, you know, I've been, I've been working or involved in this area of law now for a decade and I've seen under different governments, under different ministers, under different directors at different levels of the department, vast differences in the way decisions are made and they're working within the same system. Um, so the, the system is set up to lead people to fail because of the culture surrounding it, not necessarily because of the legal structures that are there. Um, we do have, you know, I think Raj says we don't have any gender and sexuality guidelines. We do. We have um, very specific gender and sexuality guidelines directed to department decision makers, um, but it's not a published document. And then there are gender guidelines for the Administrative Appeals Tribunal as well. Um, and both of those bodies are also directed to take into account the UNHCR's guidelines um, and other relevant international documents. But the, the problem is that decision makers are so empowered by culture, lack of training um, and, and a push from the top to refuse people that they don't even follow the guidelines. So that and, and then we have, a, 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 unfortunately, a system with uh, in our judicial review pathway that doesn't really infiltrate this area of decision making too much because there's been a huge hesitance by um, by the judiciary over the past 30 years um, since we have had this kind of administrative decision making uh, to get too overly involved or, or to take away the power given to decision makers at a merits review level. Um, there's a huge amount of deference given to them like there is to criminal law judges um, who hear all the evidence rather than, you know, judge on appeal that doesn't hear all of the evidence. 
Um, and so then when we have a huge lack of training for those decision makers at merits and primary stages, as well as probably some problematic recruitment processes into those positions, you know, the tribunal at the moment is stacked with um, heavily conservative, uh, liberal party aligned people and ex-politicians and public servants rather than lawyers and people with legal training, um, we're, we're going to have a system that fails when it could, as a system at a base level, actually work potentially pretty well. And I've seen it for a couple of years function um, under a, you know, a different minister um, quite well. But that, that's, that's, you know, that's a difficult, <laughs> difficult thing area to talk about when we start to delve into politics, but I don't think there's any secret um, in that whoever is leading the charge at the top of the immigration department and um, uh, that, that, that is going to filter down um, into decision making in this area. So I don't know if that answers. I think we've got the structures there. We need some serious overhaul of training and recruitment and culture. Um, in order to make sure that it's working and that will protect all the marginalised groups within this already, you know, marginalised group of people seeking asylum. Awesome. Thanks so much, Em. That was really interesting. I kind of haven't heard that perspective on that the tribunal and the system can work and has worked. Like, you don't hear that much about that. So it's really interesting that kind of political elements can influence it that much and that intersect between politics and the law, I think, is always interesting. Um, and there, there, are, there are some positive signs in the um, judicial review space over the last 12 months in particular. There's been, there's been some new appointments to the Federal Circuit Court and the Federal Court, um, and those judges are making some headway in looking at things like apprehended and actual bias in this particular area, which is usually such a difficult ground to succeed in or develop any kind of positive jurisprudence in. Um, but they're almost sort of putting their foot down and saying, actually, it's, it's not okay to be so grossly inappropriate in the way that we are questioning people from this particular um, cohort of people seeking asylum or the way that we're making decisions in this area. So it's, it's very slow moving. It takes years to get those kinds of decisions coming through um, and then to have them applied back, you know, right down into the actual guidance documents that are given to department decision makers. Um, but there, there are some positive, some positive signs, I think, with some big changes to the way, like the makeup of our judiciary is changing uh, from what it was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, awesome. Um, thanks heaps, Anne. Uh, Reese is going to speak now. Reese, do you want to just turn your mic on? Um, and he said something in the chat which is really interesting. So you can either um, read that out or expand on it as you wish, Reese. Uh, can Can everyone hear me? Yes. Excellent. Um, just really quickly, I just want to say thank you for organising this. Uh, I'm currently in my final year of my law degree and I haven't been really been able to find most people that like public law. So it's nice to be able to share a like and a love for public law with people who are like-minded. Um, I just, I, I was, I did make a comment because I agree so much with what Emily was saying and Brandy as well, but uh, especially Emily, the point that you raised, I think is super crucial here is that the convention doesn't capture these people. Um, and I don't want to say these people, I'm not trying to marginalize them any more than they already are, but the cohort themselves aren't actually captured within the definition. So the fact that we, I don't want to sound, I don't want it to be 
like I'm saying, because it's, it's not right in itself, but the fact that they are even able to apply and be considered is uh, a step in the right direction in itself because the, the convention doesn't allow for it to happen on just a normal reading. Um, but I think that if there was to be fundamental change and to make this easier for people to actually be given what they require is that the convention's definition would need to change before anything else. Trying to fit, and, I, and I'll use the article's um, def, definition and terminology, queer people within um, the convention when the convention doesn't really allow for it is difficult. And I think that that only makes it harder for the decision makers, regardless of what their uh, viewpoint on these topics might be, to grant um, asylum to them. Um, and just on the, the, the bad faith and apprehended bias and uh, actual bias point, there was a really interesting case that I was reading about this week. Um, it's NAOX and Minister for Immigration and Citizenship. And um, it's, it's a case where th this kind of issue is highlighted so much. So if people haven't already read it, um, I, I would definitely recommend it. The um, citation is 112ALD54. Uh, thank you. Awesome. Thanks very much, Reese, for that. Um, Thanks, Marthe has just sent that um, reference, the citation into the chat if anyone wants to look that up. Um, we're going to get a question from Jai Rupi now. Jai Rupi, if you're ready. Yeah. Thank you, Annie. And thank you, Emily and Brandy, for joining us. Uh, my question was, does Australian law provide a space for marginalised people to relate their emotional stories to ensure justice is done and refugee narratives are understood fairly? as Raj um, mentions, um, as Robin West's argument in the article, and how can we enhance this space in our own system? Yeah, I mean, I think that Emily, I'm gonna let you go right after this, Emily, because I think <laughs> you have a more optimistic view of things um, in a number of ways than I always have. I think um, Raj talks about this idea of, um, you know, Ahmed's kind of emotional enactments, which I thought was a really great way to look at it. Um, kind of like, how do we emotionally enact? How do we, as queer people or queer refugees, right? How do we standardize this? How do we, how do we place this, this spot in here? And the thing that I think is troubling to me about the current system is that these stories, these emotional enactments, um, they're, they're expected um, as a part of your refugee claim. And I think, or asylum seeking claim, and I think that in and of itself can be a tricky space. Um, there's these authors that wrote in the 90s, Kleinman and Kleinman, and they talk about um, this idea of, um, you know, uh, your story, your trauma, you're trading your trauma, right, to get access to this, you know, quote unquote, Western world or more affluent states. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, you're almost paying with your trauma, you're paying with your emotions, and you're paying with your story as a refugee to gain access to these more affluent space and these spaces. So while I think the emotional enactments idea is really interesting by Ahmed, and I think Raj's take on it is also interesting, I think also we need to look at the other side of that and that kind of like forcing, being forced to place your trauma on display within a judicial, within a judicial system um, that basically kind of sees you as guilty until proven innocent or straight until proven gay. You know, it's, 
I think, I think it's tricky when we start to talk about, do we have space for emotion in this? Many of these people are being forced to tell their stories over and over and then being asked why they don't match every single time, right? And these are emotional issues. If you read any of the administrative appeals cases, they're just really hard to read. You know, it's not like it's a, oh yeah, I was gay and things were hard. You know, there's a lot more that people put on the line there and have to continue to put on the line at the various judicial um, levels. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Brandy. Um, thanks for your question. I, I guess I have two different answers to it as well, looking at it from two different perspectives. I'll try and talk quickly. Um, the first is when I read that part of the article, and I think that Raj situated it under the heading of um, the, the problem with representing or the, the, the challenge for representatives in this space, but then went on to move, um, you know, away from that kind of topic quickly. But I kept reading, thinking about myself as a representative and thinking about the sector and legal representatives are so much a part of this system, uh, often a, prob a big problem and, but, but, but can be, I would hope also very useful and beneficial. Um, so we, we can't take ourselves out of the system as representatives. And I think that we have a duty and an obligation as a legal sector uh, working in this space to make sure that we aren't ourselves also doing the wrong thing and perpetuating um, the abuses that the uh, system itself is, um, is uh, inflicting. So when I read that, I was thinking about uh, the fact, you know, that I completely agree with his statements that we need a, a space for marginalised people to uh, relate their emotional stories, I think is what he said. And um, when, when I was very early on in practising, so in about 2014, I recognised how much of a problem the actual sector and the way that we provide legal assistance to people in this space is part of the, you know, we're, we're letting the system dictate how we actually assist people. We're letting the massive amounts of people who need assistance and the huge, um, the huge deficit in legal, in available legal representation and adequate legal representation dictate what we actually do as practitioners. And what was happening in around 2014 was we were being inundated with people needing assistance um, because there was a period of time where about 30,000 people arrived in Australia by boat and all of those people were held in a position where they couldn't seek protection um, and then all at once were kind of allowed to seek protection. And so you had this huge amount of people that had been like held and then pushed into this tiny little uh, legal sector and through this process that um, didn't have enough resources to manage it in a timely manner. And in working very closely with people with SOGI-based claims and also with women with um, gender-based asylum claims who sort of fall outside the SOGI-based claimant group but are, have faced similar issues, um, my concern at that time when we had to then start offering only very limited assistance through clinics and often evening clinics where you would see a different person every week and you might only get a couple of hours to actually sit down and tell your story with someone. Um, I was very concerned about how we would then be basically becoming an agent of the system in completely letting down this particular cohort if that's the kind of legal assistance we were going to offer them. Um, so that, so I, I started a, a specific clinic to work with people in this space uh, for this very reason, to try and create a space um, and in the use of the word space, they're you know, very broad, both an actual physical space that was suitable and adequate, but also a conceptual space in terms of 
providing continuity of practitioner working one-on-one -on -one with people, providing you know, adequate time to allow for disclosure, um, providing adequate training for representatives or volunteers working with that group. Um, uh, so I think that we, we have still that clinic running at the ASRC, but there's not a lot of other services out there that sort of have taken that very specialised approach and I think we need much more of that and it needs to be led by people with lived experience um, in sort of how we actually set up those services and who's running them and we don't, we don't do that at the moment at all within the sector that I'm aware of and I think I'm fairly well across it. Um, and then I guess the second part of my answer very quickly is that uh, I've just completely lost my thought. Oh, I think, I think Raj spoke about this really well when he spoke about the... Um, the issue of the double bind. So he spoke about the double bind in one particular context, but I think the, the phrase double bind and that concept kind of um, resonates right across the, the issues that we see with this particular cohort of people. Um, there's this double bind where you have to have a system that somehow assesses what people are saying. You have to have a system that assesses credibility. There has to be some kind of process. It can't just be that um, you, you, you say something is true and it's, it's assessed as being true. You know, a legal system doesn't work that way um, and it's never going to work that way. So you have to have a system that assesses credibility, but then you also want to have a system that doesn't re-traumatise people. Um, and, and, and he, you know, Raj grapples with that very well and probably, you know, much better than I can when he talks about the, the problems with not being emotive or with being emotive or just the underlying issue with the way emotion is kind of, left out of, of this system altogether at times. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I, I, yeah, I think, I think some ways that we can address that particular problem of creating, you know, the right space is through having training uh, systems and guidelines developed by people with lived experience um, for the Department of Home Affairs Decision Making, for the Administrative Appeals Tribunal Decision Makers. And, um, if we don't have that at a very, very base level, then we're, ne we're never going to overcome these issues. And I, I have been advocating for that to happen. Um, I think another way we can address it is by doing simple things like, say, implementing the, the principles in the Yogi Carta, um, the Yogi Carta principles themselves, if we implemented them in Australia adequately, um, we would overcome a lot of, a lot of these problems in, in uh that we're, that we're talking about, including this idea of creating space for, um, for people to, you know, relate their emotional stories. That's a really, that was a really awesome answer, Emily. Um, I think that idea of that re-traumatising and how terrible that is and how we have to work to avoid re-traumatising people in the system. Mm -hmm. um, who've already I could also just jump in. Quick, can you see me? Yeah. Um, on your comment, Emily, also, I think that something that interesting was um, you speaking about how important it is to make sure that people who are representing, like representatives who are representing these people should be educated about it, um, like these kind of issues. Um, and I just think it's interesting to think about if, if representatives themselves who are trying to like help queer applicants win a case, um, if they're not educated, then how can we expect that, like, at the higher level, at the judge level, education to happen? So mm. it's, it has to happen at every level. So mm. that sort of level of representatives should be easier to change. So that should happen. Mm. 
Yeah, and there's so many problems with that because so many legal representatives in this particular area, um, especially historically, have been employed through government-funded contracts. And so even if they themselves, you know, want to do the very best that they can and want to go out and become as educated and informed about these issues as possible, they're given such little amount of time per funding and that, you know, that, that, that government funding almost kind of silences them in a way in terms of advocating for them to be able to do more. Um, so that, that's one problem. And the other is it's, it's very hard to not become an agent of the system. Like I, I've sat down with clients so many times and pushed them on questions that I think I'm doing the right thing by trying to create a statement or prepare them for a hearing or an interview or take their instructions for something. And I'm coming at it from the point of view of knowing what the decision maker is going to do and knowing what kind of problems could befall them if they don't do what I'm asking. And I'll, I'll leave a, a clinic or I'll finish a week of appointments and just think, what did I do this week? A am I just, am I saying, well, this is the system we have. It's it's horribly broken, it's, um, you know, horrifically traumatic, but I'm trying to get people right now who are going through it, through it and to the other side. Um, but I think if we're going to do that and we're going to be agents of the system because we have to right now, we have to also be trying to challenge it and change it. We can't just let it go on forever and say, well, this is the way it is. I can assist people, and, and, you know, and get most people through this system, but it's going to be... What, what is their life going to be like on the other side of it? Um, and I don't agree with what I'm doing. And I'm even sitting there telling people saying, I don't agree with the fact that I'm asking you these questions, but I'm trying to avoid you being refused. Um, and if I'm not also at the same time trying to actively make sure that that changes as much as possible within my practising career, then, you know, I, I think I'm doing the wrong thing. And I think if all, of, if all legal practitioners took that approach to, well, the system's broken, but people have to go through it right now. But as long as I'm trying to change it in the long term, you know, I think we'd see a lot more, a lot more pro progression in our, um, in our law in this space and many others. Yeah, and that's where we really see the importance of like work and advocacy as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It all, it all, it all has to be, um, it all has to be done at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much, Emily. That was such an interesting point. Um, we're just going to have to keep moving. So Claire has a question for us. Claire? Hi, guys, again. Um, so thanks, Emily, for that answer about the agents of system. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I think we'll probably have to move on to our last question. Um, they're a lot shorter and we had a lot more questions to go through, but we've all just been so interested. Um, I think this one's associated with the re-traumatizing, as you said. I think this question might be directed towards Brandy. Do you believe that the emergence of an expectation of emotion in claims by adjudicators helpful or harmful to an individual's asylum claim? It's re in reference to page 453 to 455, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm not, as you mentioned, memorized this article. Emotion um, is not simply a personal matter. This is just something I highlighted, so now I'll just read it to remind myself. The emotion is not simply a personal matter confined to the bodies of queer asylum seekers. It also manifests in the asylum adjudication process itself. I think from the cases that I've read, um, you know, without, God, it's such a tricky thing. And I think it, it goes back to the question that we had just before this is that it's, um, without it, you aren't seen as credible without, 
enacting your own trauma, you are not seen as credible. You are, um, if you get up and say the exact same thing you said the time before, then you'll see that, that the ALJ will also question that. Well, this is exactly what you said last time. Or last time, you know, then, or you'll have a discrepancy that was like, you didn't say this last time. So whether you have this system memorized or you're, you're lucky enough to have a, you know, a representative like Emily, who is just like, well, we got to get you through the system, but we also know the system needs to change is that there's so many, it's so easy, especially in the, in, within um, this particular marginalized population of a marginalized population um, to expect that somehow credibility um, looks the same as it would for someone else. Um, I think that when we're talking about, you know, yeah, I think it's, hmm, I don't know, going around in my head about this, but you know, as any of us who like have experienced trauma ourselves or understand people who have that, we all react in different ways. And whether that's shutting down or becoming over emotional or one day doing this and the next day doing this, it's gonna be a part of the system because the system wants to have those narratives. And the more you can fit into those narratives um, by expressing the right type of emotion in the right way, the more likely your case is going to be to get through. Um, I was thinking of an example, um, this was more around um, sex trafficking, but also um, gender um, violence-based claims where sometimes, you know, women um, in this particular, in this Canadian um, case that I was thinking about, right? She was like, well, I was political. That's why they, they grabbed me. That's why I got beat up. I was political, I was political. And they, and because she didn't fit the, that kind of like stereotype um, and because she was a woman that was talking about politics, her, there was this discussion about how her representative said, well, it's actually gonna be easier for us to gain your freedom by talking about a gender-based violence claim and kind of push her um, to talk about something completely different than what had happened to her in order to make it through the system. This isn't the Australian system, this is the Canadian one. Um, but so I think that while, I think, I think Emily is on spot, but I, um, Oh, I just lost my train of thought. All right, Emily, you go. I'm sure you're on it. Do you want me to answer as well, or do you want to move to the next question? We're actually going to have to move yeah. to the next question. And sorry, guys, it's probably likely that we're going to go a few minutes over time. Um, but we're going to move to some audience questions now. So we've had one submitted. Conan, if you want to ask it for us, please. Yeah. Um, thanks, Emily and Brandy. It's been amazing so far. Uh, so just generally, what does a utopian system look like? And yeah, what would the ideal future look like for sexual orientation and gender identity refugees in Australia? I, I, might, I might end up repeating myself a little bit here. I think, um, I think no system is ever going to be perfect and we're always going to have decision makers and decisions that slip through the, you know, the cracks of even any really, really sound process. Um, but I, I think, as I said before, that what we need to do is we need to actually engage um, and obtain the voices and the opinions of people who uh, have lived experience within this this group. It's it's a very uh, it's a very unique group of people to fall within um, a minority group of people who have been forcibly displaced and who uh, uh, within the LGBTIQ community. It's it's a it's a group of people who should be speaking for themselves on this and they should be, um, 
invited at all levels of uh, the system to develop <laughs> the system. Um, I, I think one problem with ever making it perfect though, and this kind of comes back to Claire's question is that you can't take emotion out of a system that's run by people and you can't assess you can't make legal decisions with a computer. So you're always going to have a decision maker that's sitting there that's unable in some way to separate their personal identity and their self from their position and their job. Um, so you need to make sure that every possible safeguard is put in place to prevent that crossover from um, causing the system to fail. And there's some basic things that we don't do that we could do um, that would help with, um, you know, decision makers splitting out their two different selves. Because one, that, that idea of the two selves um, affects this particular cohort of people seeking asylum more than any other, uh, for, for obvious reasons. So, um, yeah, I, I think with adequate training systems developed by people with lived experience, and then added ad, adequate written guidelines also developed by people with lived experience um, is the starting point. I think what we also need is not just guidelines, but we need actual regulations that can then be challenged in judicial review spaces uh, if they're not followed, because at the moment, uh, policy and guidelines, is it's very difficult to... Um, it's very difficult to challenge that at a judicial review level to say that a decision maker didn't follow policy or guideline, um, as we all know. So that kind of level of detail and guidance needs to actually be taken right up into our regulations. And our migration regulations are um, already very thorough and can include that kind of level of detail. There's, there's no reason why they can't. So and also just, just to add to Emily's point, I think that's looking at what a system looks like, but as you know, as some of the asylum seekers themselves express in their cases, why would I pretend to be gay if I wasn't? Why would I come to this court? Why would I come to this country? Why would I feign this, you know, if this wasn't really happening to me? Why would I stand up here and say this over and over again? And I think that there for specific, you know, okay, maybe for refugee asylum seekers more broadly, I just agree that we need to, the system needs to be about inclusion and not about exclusion. Um, and I think this is even more so for people who are making a claim based on that. I don't think they need to be going through um, processes where they're, um, you know, guilty until proven innocent. I don't think that's the way our system would work and certainly isn't what they we had in mind when we put forth the Refugee Convention. That wasn't it at all. It was to help people that um, needed it. And, and to act like we, everything needs to be done in this very sort of legal judicial process way, where maybe instead we have, you know, someone like Emily interviews someone and then says, okay, my recommendation is we let them in, right? We don't need to be doing our best to eject all these people. You know, there's no case, there's I think only a handful of cases where someone's been accepted as a, as a refugee and they've committed a crime or done something egregious and had to be taken out of the country after that because that's just not the people, this is just not what's happening here. And so for me, I think sometimes the utopia looks a little less like a civil or criminal justice system and more like a inclusive space for individuals. Thanks, Brandy um, and Emily, both of you for the answer to that question. That was given us all a lot to think about, I think. Um, we are going a few minutes over time. Is there anyone in the audience who would like to ask a question? Um, please just turn your mic off and start talking, if so. 
I mean, on from the back on. We'll make a general comment about any of their thoughts, feelings. I'd just like to ask a, I guess, well, I mean, it could be a very meaty question or it could be a nice and simple answer, um, but just touching on all the themes that have been discussed so far, should we be looking to amend the Refugee Convention to exclude, um, sorry, include explicitly um, claims relating to sexual orientation um, or um, would this not achieve much and we should be looking at other options instead? What do, you, do you want to go for assembly? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it would be, I think it would achieve something in the long term, um, especially in other countries where they haven't had the uh, codification or the implementation of the law through the judicial system, I guess, create law that on paper adequately says people who are seeking asylum on the basis of their gender and sexual identity are are protected under the convention. That's what Australian law says now in a very complicated and roundabout way that leads to lots of problems in trying to fit people into a particular social group and issues with the question of state protection are very, very complicated for this particular group. Um, but I, so I think would, like, I've always, I've always said that I, you know, support, support that. Absolutely. Um, I don't know how much it would, it would change a lot of the kind of actual day-to-day -day problems with this area of decision-making. They relate much more to culture, lack of education, problems with training, privilege, you know, just broader issues with our um, asylum system more generally, the, the, the criminalisation of, of immigration, like all of those are the bigger problems here. Um, even though, yes, that would probably be helpful and in the long term uh, take away some of that um, in, in, some of the initial issues that decision makers have with grappling or with a particular social group and trying to fit people into a box. But I, I think most of the other issues don't fundamentally stem from that problem. Um, yeah, although I'd like to see massive reforms to the Refugee Convention because that convention was created in a completely different world um, and we need some huge changes because people are so, you know, you see governments being so afraid of this broad convention that they step away from it and they do what, what Brandy was saying, which is create these systems which are actually, you know, deviating us away from the idea of just humanitarian protection for people. So I think some, some, some much, much broader changes are necessary, but, you know, obviously would advocate for that happening. I don't know that it would solve many of the issues. And I would say I completely agree with Emily, but also completely disagree. I do not <laughs> think we should touch the Refugee Convention. The minute in this conservative environment we are currently in, the minute we start to allow changes is the minute that we're gonna lose any traction that we've gained based on that document. Um, so for me, while I completely agree with all of Emily's points, I would be scared to open that up for any sort of change, especially in the current um, political environment we're in. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think all of Emily's points are really good. My biggest fear is that it's just somehow going to landslide even further backwards if we touch mm -hmm. it. Unfortunately, those big, broad international conventions, as much as we as, you know, people working within this space and lawyers like to think that they are the, the be all and end all in some ways, they, they don't have a lot of bearing in practice. Like we're a signature to the convention. We've completely codified our way out of it <laughs> in 2014 and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened to the, to the government. Our system has been- Emily, there's been some stern letters from the UN. Stern yeah. letters from the UN. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so 
Yeah, it's all well and good in theory. And yes, it would be fantastic if gender and sexuality were in there in the damn first place. They were absolutely a persecuted group when that convention was being drafted, but also they were a group of people who were incredibly marginalised within a lot of those countries that were involved in the drafting. And, um, you know, it was a very different era, so we can understand why they why it wasn't included. But, yeah, I, I also I, yeah, I agree with Brandy. It's a, it's a dangerous... It's a dangerous time to be trying to amend any governing document like that, even if it doesn't have a lot of power in the end. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for the answer to that question. And uh, we're going to wrap up. So more generally, thank you both so much for being here. Um, I, for one, and I'm sure everyone agrees, have learned so much today. Like, I'm almost overwhelmed. Um, and we've just been so lucky to have the both of you here. Like you're both just amazing in your fields and um, the perspective of both of you uh, has been really, really beneficial to all of us. So thank you very, very much for coming. Thanks, thanks for organizing guys. Yeah, and I also, yeah, thank you so much for organizing. And I really want to thank Emily. Um, you were awesome when I met you before and now I'm even like more excited when this, I mean, maybe we can have a Zoom wine soon, but like, yeah. you know, your ideas are amazing. And I, I think, having both of us here where you know we're having this sort of positive and this you know both both sides of, of perhaps mm. um what our current system is and then how we can work within that but yeah how we can work beyond that um i think i'm just really impressed by you and that's and i want to thank you guys all for bringing us together to have that chat too mm. Likewise. and i think that 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 kind of very nuanced divergence of views is like what mm. makes a really awesome conversation so mm. i'm really glad about that um, and it's easy, it's easy to get stuck in your like practitioner mind or your academic mind. And I think as a sector in the last couple of years, we're starting to work together a little bit better rather than all working in our own kind of silos and not necessarily communicating well. And that, that um, yeah, that's been certainly great in working with Brandy and talking to Brandy. Amazing. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you both so much. Um, just in terms of our next book club, uh, I just put the link in the chat for a poll that we've just posted so that people can vote for the topic for our next one. So um, we'll be in about a month and our options are the Pell judgment as a stimulus for various approaches to potential law reform within the context of the 2017 Royal Commission. And the second option is um, how intellectual property can be mobilised to increase food security or whether IP for plans contributes to large companies' power in the industry. Um, so two very good uh, topics and we will definitely be doing both. So it's more about which one we do first. Um, Brandy, I just saw your message. So we both, so for the PLN, um, we have a fortnightly um, email that goes around, like a bulletin. Um, so we can definitely get you involved in that if you're keen. Um, and the DLA have a new mailing list, which uh, would also be great for you to be involved in. But what we'll do, um, and what we did for our last event, is send around a follow-up email to all our, all our attendees and speakers with kind of the main points that we covered. Um, and Emily and Brandy, if either of you wanted to send me any articles that you think people might be interested in, in terms of follow-up reading, um, then that would be great. And we'll work in that case that Reese mentioned as well. We can chuck that in. So, yes, and then we'll put in... Um, oh, Em's just sent the... Mate, oh, Mads has just sent the um, mailing list sign-up. So, 
Can I also just add one more thing um, for students? If you're if you are interested in in this kind of area of law, that is a really incredible place to learn um, to volunteer and learn. It's such a safe, positive environment, and um, it's a really good place to be part of. If you feel like you want to go in that direction, I highly recommend it. And just on that, the final thing that I'll say is um, if people have learned something from today's discussion, um, we would very much encourage people to donate to the ASRC and I'll just chuck the link in there now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know, Mathea knows everyone, a few of us here know um, how amazing the ASRC is and how well they use financial help. Like they really need it and they just use it in the best way that I've come across. Um, yeah, I would also suggest RISE as well um, as a directly, because yeah. that's run by Refugees for Refugees. And while it's not a legal service, I would recommend that um, also as a donation space. Awesome, thanks Brandy. Um, so RISE in the ASRC if you've learned something and feel like donating. Um, but apart from that, if no one has anything else to say, uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, so thanks very much, everyone. Thanks, Sammy. Bye. Everyone. <laughs>